Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Happy Monday, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are watching me from around the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's teaching. I am Krista Bontrager. I'm a theologian and public apologist, and this is the channel where I offer teaching about the Bible and theological commentary on social issues. And as the year comes to an end, I want to say thank you to each and every person who has partnered with me financially this year. This ministry is possible because of people like you. I am able to be deployed in full-time ministry, uh, researching this content and putting out this content because of people like you. You can find out more information about how to support this ministry as the year is coming to a close. Um, I would invite you to prayerfully consider how you might support me at the Center for Biblical Unity. You can just go at the Center for Biblical Unity website and click on the donate button at the top and that will give you all the details. We are a 501c3, so if you wanna get that tax deduction, you can do that. Now, some of you may remember that last December, I did a three-part deep dive into the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and I went through every passage in the New Testament about Mary with my friend Aaron Kunkel from Maven. If you missed that series, might be fun to go back in the archive and check those on the replay. Some great Christmas content. But the discussion today will also focus on Mary. And I'm going to be considering the question, was Mary a social justice warrior? Now, this show, this particular episode was inspired by a meme that I've seen floating around social media. And I'm going to show you that right now. So this is a meme for those on the podcast. You can see Mary kind of in the middle there with her fist raised and over on the top, it says cast down the mighty. And then underneath her, it says send the rich away to the side. It says fill the hungry, lift the lowly. And she's stepping on a snake and a skull, which I would assume represents um death and the devil and i actually did take the time to look up the artist's statement um about the meaning behind the image and he had quite a thoughtful little blog post about the image and his kind of story of why he did this and you can go read his discussion for yourself and this is just sort of the short thumbnail version of what he said and he said he was inspired by Mary's song in Luke chapter one. Sometimes this is called the Magnificat. So the Magnificat or Mary's song starts in verse 46, but the artist in particular was focusing on verse 43, where it says, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So that really caught my attention because what the artist was trying to do was kind of reimagine Mary as a call to justice. In some version, 
he said in particular of economic justice. Um, and this is why he put her fist in the air. I have so many questions about this whole conversation and how it fits into the wider context of Mary's poem, as well as I think more largely and broadly, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. And these are these are not tangential issues to our faith, I think. And, and that's why I think that this conversation is so important because so many people in our cultural context right now are asking thoughtful and provocative questions about the Bible, what it means, how it connects to issues of justice, what is the kingdom of God. And these are, these are important issues for Christians to kind of be able to be grounded in and have some answers to. So I've asked my friend, Father Hayden Butler from St. Matthew's Anglican Church in Newport Beach, California, to come on and help walk us through this passage and talk a little bit more about Jesus. And we'll probably get in a little into Christmas and the incarnation and the kingdom of God and all of that. And so with that, I want to welcome Father Hayden to Theology Mom Podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Krista. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. And as we're thinking about the topic today of, you know, thinking about Luke chapter one, you know, and I, I've taught a fair amount of classes in my life and in my career on how to interpret the Bible. So one of the things I always tell my students is start by, if you're going to look at a particular verse, it's best to kind of start by zooming out first and getting the big picture of the larger chunk. And as I said in my opening, this poem is from, uh, a, by Mary, is part of a larger chunk of Jesus's birth narrative. Maybe let's start there, Father Hayden. What what do you see when you read through these opening chapters of Luke? What do you think he's trying to do here? How is he preparing the reader for what's going to come a few chapters later when when we get to like chapter four and Jesus starts preaching the kingdom of God? Like let's let's start with the big picture first. You know, in Luke chapter one, we get the purpose of this uh, this initial chapter from Luke's own words in the first verses of chapter one, um, he addresses the book as he does with the book of Acts to uh, this to this person named Theophilus. Commentators are um, divided on whether this is a, a particular person or this is um, someone who ge generally fits the description of what Theophilus means, which is so, uh, the lover of God. Uh, and uh, and so he addresses this saying, I, it seems right to me to set down in, in an orderly way from the beginning the way that these things came about. And so he clues us into um, uh, his ambition to to tell the story of the gospel from from its beginning. Um, and so this gives us uh, you know a, a hint as to why we begin uh, a story the, the story of Jesus Christ, not with Jesus Christ himself, but rather with the Annunciation of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, and the as the forerunner of Jesus, so that he, he's trying to give us a a sense of the true beginning of this gospel story, which begins even before the Annunciation of Jesus's birth. As we see, kind of the the rhythm of chapter one, we see it starts with John the Baptist, then it goes to Mary, and the announcement of what's going to happen. 
And then we go, the scene shifts back to Zachariah and Elizabeth because Mary goes to visit them. And then it switches to Elizabeth having her son. And then the father, uh, his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, has a poem. And then we turn the page to chapter two, and then we see the birth of Jesus. And so there's kind of this rhythm that Luke brings to the text of the back and forth between John and Jesus, John and Jesus. And and Mary's song is kind of right in the middle of that. That's right. It's the it's this pivot point in the chapter, it seems to me, uh, where uh, what is not possible before it uh, becomes possible after it. Um, I mean, even in just the the literary the literary shape of this chapter, which is so interesting, reading Luke is um, nobody sings before Mary sings, uh, and you know, and and then after that, everybody's singing. You know, I think Peter Lightheart uh, pointed out that. Uh, the early chapters of Luke read like a musical, right? Where suddenly people burst into song after this dialogue. Um, but Mary's song is that first one. Uh, and it's I think it's interesting, you, you pointed out how we go back and forth, the way we see Zechariah uh, before the Annunciation uh, uh, to Mary and her Magnificat uh, to how we see Zechariah after that. Um, he's a changed man, you know, with, with these things happening. And I, and I think Luke's wanting us to point there and say, there's something happening here, right? So what is that thing that's happening? Yeah. And then if we were to turn the page again, we would see in chapter three that Luke is now telling us about, you know, Jesus growing and, you know, he's, we see this picture of the genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam. And so Luke's gospel historically, from what I understand, is is geared toward the the Greek. It's geared toward, whereas Matthew's gospel is more for the, for the Jew, Luke's gospel is more for the Greek. And so he traces his genealogy all the way back to the first human, to Adam, and to, to show us, you know, that Jesus was a true human being. And then we, we just burst onto the page in chapter four, where Jesus is ministering, you know, he goes out in the temptation and then he's teaching in the synagogue and starts proclaiming the kingdom of God. I think that there's maybe these are interrelated themes that, that Luke is, is using to set up Jesus's ministry. Like the birth narrative isn't just a throwaway section of the book. It's, Lead, Luke is leading us somewhere. I think it's helpful to remember that Luke and the book of Acts are written kind of as one continuous story mm-hmm. told in two volumes. And, and, and many Christians for, for centuries have read them, you know, adjacent to each other, even though we, in, in the in the canon- canonical order, we have John in between them in most of our Bibles. Uh, you know, if you if you kind of read that, you, you have, I think it's always good to see uh, acts as this continuation of the story, then what's being unpacked here in the beginning of the gospel is has implications for the the later chapters of Acts. And so we're talking a lengthy story being written here. Luke is, mm-hmm. you know, the, the most, you know, the, the most voluminous writer in the New Testament. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I think you're you're pointing to the, you know, the idea of uh, the genealogy going back to Adam that being significant for the, the the revealing that the gospel goes beyond the house of Abraham and goes out mm-hmm. into the nations as God promised Abraham, 
Um, and so this, this, you know, what we're seeing here in these early chapters is the, the nucleus of something that will be unfolded to have global. And then as we, you know, import John's gospel into it, cosmic dimensions. Because uh, we, if we were to turn all the way to the end of Acts, we see the gospel getting to Rome. Right. And as, as you and I were talking about earlier, and then if we were to extend that further, the gospel gets all the way to England, you know, pretty exactly. quickly. So it Luke's agenda is, you know, how do we get from Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, to the good news getting into the house of Caesar? Like, what is that trajectory where we get to the Gospels and all of a sudden there's all these Gentiles in the church? If there was no Acts, we wouldn't have that that bridge to know like, wait, something happened by the time I got to Romans. So, you know, I think it's really important for us to understand when we're, our tendency, I think, as Christians today in our American context is we just want to look at a verse and we get like so focused on that. It's always best to start out like, okay, how does this, let's get the big picture first. It has this wonderful symmetry with the beginning of Luke's gospel, where the beginning of the Christmas story we read every year, right? That in the, in the you know, under the reign of Caesar Augustus, a decree mm. went out from Rome, right? That all the world should be taxed. And then as you read Luke's whole telling of the story, the last thing we get from Luke is, and then a decree goes out from Jerusalem uh, back to Rome. Right, it's the response of of the King of Kings to the you know the the supposed the self proclaimed Son of God on the throne of the uh, the imperial throne of Rome, and it's it's a beautiful way to look at that call and response. Okay, now let's let's go back to Luke one and kind of zero in here and start to focus on Mary's prayer. Um, I want to just take a moment, if if it's okay with you, to just look at the prayer in its whole context, and we can read through it because I think it's it's important for people to again like know the whole thing. This might be a new section of scripture for some people. They they might not have ever read Mary's song in, you know, in its entirety. Again, this is in the context of Mary visiting Elizabeth. And uh she says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So that's the whole poem. And and so we want to really think about that that larger chunk, because when we think about a poem, um, we might have our favorite line of a poem, but we always want to put it into the larger context of the poem. I know you're you're a guy with literary sensibilities and and background. Maybe you can walk us through Mary's poem here a little bit, and what what is she trying to tell us? 
so it's it's significant, I think, to start with, um, you know, when we come to any poetry, and this is, you know, drawing up on my years as an English teacher, um, uh, you know, we look at, you know, what kind of poem is this? Uh, and um, there, there's there's good reason to think that this poem participates in a in the kind of um, poetic tradition of, of of the Hebrew Bible, right? Of the namely in the Psalm tradition. Um, this this song is very similar to the structure of of, a, of many of the psalms, uh, and so you have this um, you know the this entry point into it through the um, through the lens of the of the psalmist right of the person who's who's offering this prayer um, in that first those first you know three lines there my soul magnifies the Lord my spirit rejoices in God Savior for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant that's the first chunk there is this um, you know this idea of 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 being um, of of magnifying of of the of the magnification coming from one who is lowly, um, the lowliness of his servant here is a significant phrase um, that has you know tap roots in in a lot of the Old Testament literature, um, particularly in the narrative portions of of Israel's history. I'm going for stretching from Genesis all the way through uh, through First Samuel. Um, very often, this phrase, the the humble estate of his servant. Um, the humble estate here is actually a very uh, technical term to uh, to reference the um, the the kind of apparent social shame, the outward shame felt and and carried by a woman who is unable to conceive. It's it's associated with, for example, um, Sarah who cannot conceive a child for Abram, uh, and then you also have this being um, applied to Hannah, um, who cannot who is who is unable to bear a child in the in the book of First Samuel. Um, and so there's this um, cluing in to um, that 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 Mary is is expressing through her experience of what has happened, um, having considered, um, she is standing in this you know solidarity with this whole history uh, of people before her, um, and she is 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 revealing she is showing how her point in history and her experience of this is actually a, it intensifies and focuses. Um, God revealing what He is doing among His people, as it was during the age of Sarah, as it was at the in the time of Hannah. Now, in her time, God is revealing Himself through this focal point that is her. Uh, and I think we have to start there. So, what are your thoughts about that? Your tying it back to the Old Testament is critical, because too often we forget, you know, that the Old Testament is standing in the background of the New Testament. And it's so we need to factor that into what's happening. These are Jews. These are first century Jewish people who would have known the Old Testament. And I think that it's interesting that Mary, assuming, you know, she was, you know, on the younger end of the age spectrum, was so conversant in the scriptures that she could, you know, put together a poem like this and that it has such deep and rich meaning. Um, and I also noticed the word solidarity. And I think that that's a word that many people in our culture use today uh, with a very particular meaning of solidarity with particular people groups. But I would love for you to, to expound on that a little bit more of who do you see Mary standing in solidarity with? Uh, Luke seems to have two horizons for that, um, at least as I read it. Um, one is, of course, what she concludes with in the song, um, the remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. 
so the first horizon is to the house of Israel, right? It's to the it's to the children of Abraham, um, and to a promised mercy that um, that was delivered in the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant, um, and that God is fulfilling a promise that has stood since the days of Abraham. Uh, and so, but then the you know Luke in the next chapter, you know, in the chapter as you mentioned, drawing the genealogy back to Adam takes us into the language of Genesis 3 uh, to the proto-gospel there, uh, that where God promises you know, that the seed of the woman uh, will crush the head of the serpent, um, and that being the kind of the first articulation of the, of the gospel. Um, and so this has also a, a, a global um, you know, horizon to it as well. Um, that, so she's, she's both standing in solidarity with her own people, and her experience is now being this focal point through which the whole, like the whole history of her people, is being vicariously represented. But then it goes even beyond that, as, as Luke will unfold for us. That actually, in uh, in this uh, in this mystery of the incarnation of God of becoming human, uh, that humanity comes from somewhere. It's coming through her, uh, and and so in this we are we you know she stands in solidarity with all the children of Adam and Eve. Too, she is becoming the focal point through which humanness is being assumed by God in the incarnation, in the in the in the enfleshment of Christ, uh, and so both to all her faithful, all the faithful covenant people, and then all of us actually, all humans are. She is standing as a as a focal point of and a representative of in this moment. It's it's remarkable. Let's talk a little bit about this section that. You know, some in our culture, as I mentioned in the opening, you know, are really starting to hone in on in Mary's prayer of, you know, there's this wording of, of cast, uh, scattered the, the proud and the thoughts of their hearts and brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those in a humble state, filled the hungry with good things, and the rich were sent away empty. Now, seeing this wording through the lens of what we call in, on, in our ministry, you know, the, the contemporary critical social theories, where we're going to reorganize society and look at it through the lens of power structures, who's in power, um, how do we bring them out of power, how do we engage in a project of equity. When these words of Mary's are viewed through this kind of postmodern critical social theories lens, there is a picture of her that emerges that says, well, she's in solidarity with the oppressed. However, our culture is defining who the oppressed are and that sort of a thing. Um, so walk us through from your perspective, you know, what is it that Mary's talking about about here? Oh, this is this is this is an amazingly like theologically, biblically rich portion of this song, um, and I think you know we have to return back to that starting point with uh, with Mary's song being connected to um, the this rich history of of songs in the Old Testament, um, and on a, aside from the Psalter with all the Psalms and that kind of song singing, um, there's also a a really wonderful um, chain of, of songs sung by women in the Old Testament. Um, which are kind of foreshadowings of Mary's song here in Luke chapter one. Um, and so when we get into this language of the proud being cast down by the mighty arm of the Lord, 
Um, this is a, 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 a kind of recurring theme uh, in these songs of the Old Testament. Um, notably, we could look at, for example, like uh, like exit in the book of Exodus. Uh, we could look at the uh, right after the crossing of the Red Sea, um, the song of Moses and then of Miriam, the prophetess, uh, who who sing together on the uh, other side of the shore, having watched Pharaoh's army be enclosed by the sea um, as the Israelites went out on dry land. Um, and they this this is the language of that song that he has um, that he has prevailed gloriously that he has cast down those uh, you know who oppressed his people um, and so this is you know tying back to the Exodus narrative and that that um, that great sign of deliverance um, we could also look for example at the song of Deborah in the book of Judges um, where she sings a song of Yael right the um, the woman who uh, who was thought to be um, you know sort of the uh, lust object of the uh, of the enemy commander of uh, this army that came to besiege uh, the city uh, and uh, you know and 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 you know she uh, you know Yael uh, you know crushed his head with a, a tent a tent spike right and she became this means of deliverance that one who was thought to be weak frail and uh, and, a, and a kind of uh, an, an object um, ends up being this deliverer of her people um, I think of we think of Hannah, right? Uh, Hannah's song in the book of First Samuel. Um, she speaks of this thing that the lowly estate, uh, the one of lowly estate, again of that outward shame, um, has been um, made into a sign of God's great uh, loving kindness and His uh, ability to bring life where there was where it was thought there could be no life. Um, and so there's there's all of these um, you know these these um, pivotal points in Israel's history become the backdrop of that language of the mighty being cast down. Um, and so as you mentioned, Krista, the, the, um, sometimes this is taken to mean um, and, and kind of co-opted or, or at least tried to be absorbed into a, um, a kind of social justice regime of one kind or another. Um, and, and, and I think that we have to be cautious in that um, biblically because um, our contemporary idea of what justice is um, does not always align with a biblical vision of justice, um, that, which is a, an incredibly robust vision of justice. Um, I can think of no vision of justice more robust than that which we find in the scriptures. Um, and behind all of those pivotal moments is a great um, injustice that is being perpetuated. And also, I would add, um, other attempts at, at achieving justice other than the way that God would come and deliver justice himself by his own mighty power. Uh, and so within each of those prior moments, if we look at you know Miriam and Moses, if we look at uh, Deborah, if we look at Samuel, um, these are points at which God is saying, the way that you have been trying to order life is not working. Uh, and it, and it, it cannot work the way you are trying to do it. And the, the, the events that unfold from each of these songs end up showing uh, not only was that way uh, flawed from the beginning, but also God's way comes to redeem in a way that those visions of justice that He's He's supplanting could couldn't even imagine, um, you know, and 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 could not accomplish on their own power. And so I think it's a timely thing to discuss this here with Mary's song because she hers is the pinnacle of all of that song tradition. So when we hear the the words of Mary's song about scattering the proud and bringing down the mighty from their thrones and um, sending the rich away empty. When we hear that, we sh 
what should we think about? What are the powers that we should have in our minds that that those words are describing? So it, it takes us back to, I think, you know, where we where, where we pick up from the proto gospel in Genesis, where um, after uh, the departure from Eden, after the rebellion of the first uh, the, the first humans, we have a, an unfolding of this of this new thing um, in God's good world called you know what the scriptures will later call the world, um, and it begins with the creation of this first these first cities um, that that are that that uh, that are planted in with increasing distance away from God's good paradise uh, for that he had he made and curated for his people. Um, and that's the first horizon of all of this is um, the the ones on their thrones, the the the, the powers um, are all of those things that conspire together both in the heavens and on the earth um, to um, to set up a a kind of perverse anti-creation within God's good creation. An attempt to mimic it and to control it for themselves, um, and so this is really anyone and anything, both of outward high estate or low estate, but anyone who conspires to sort of to seize life um, for oneself um, and to order life as one would have it and not as it is given. Um, that is what what is what is envisioned by this, and all of the violence. And 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 kind of conspiracy and all the scheming that goes with that that corrupts the human person and, and degrades them. I think you're making reference to the repeat of a phrase in the early chapters of Genesis where they keep going east, and so they're getting further and further away from Eden. And some people may have never noticed that repeated phrase before, but there's a few key moments in the early chapters of Genesis where it says, "And then they went east," and then. And then they established cities east of Eden, and and they went to the east, and and that we're supposed to get the picture that humanity, as they're building culture and cities, is going further and further away from paradise. That's that's right. And, and meanwhile, like as we see in the book of Daniel, for example, the visions of Daniel, um, these kingdoms and the people that the figureheads that represent them. Are growing increasing, or sorry, decreasingly human. They are becoming more bestial, uh, and so by the time we get to like, we, by the time as the kingdoms unfold, we see that they are they're represented in Daniel's visions by by these like grotesque creatures because they have lost the stature of of the beauty and dignity of, of humanness uh, until the vision of the of the great king who comes from God, who's promised to Daniel, who stands like a man. Um, after a long sequence of beast kings uh, and 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 what an interesting insight! I've never thought about that before, but I totally see what you're saying there with that. Okay, continue. I'm sorry, I got just got a little excited about that. <laughs> no, so where we get here, and this is where I think we have to draw a kind of cautionary line here with with um, you know moving from the place of our contemporary vision of of justice into the biblical vision of justice is that. Very often, um, our our preconceived notion of justice isn't good enough. It's not it's not imaginative enough. Um, it does it's it's not that it um, exceeds in some way. It's just that it's def it's deficient in almost every way and doesn't actually pierce to the heart of the problem. Um, and so, what I can imagine and what my wariness when I first saw this this meme that you that you shared earlier, uh, one of my initial reactions to it, and as I was talking with my wife about it, we were both kind of meditating on it. Um, is is that um, it doesn't seem to go far enough um, in what it's it's sort of 
communicating in the, and at least the the visible symbols that it that are included there is uh, it seems to settle for a kind of um, functional justice without actually getting to the real heart of of what makes something unjust. Um, and so, what my my apprehension pastorally around that would be uh, is that someone could take that to mean that what God is doing is He's just ousting those who were previously powerful in order to make the previously powerful powerless powerful like they were powerful, uh, which is kind of revolutionary thing in the modern sense. And really what Christ comes to do is to undermine the whole foundation upon which that whole powerful, powerless kind of binary is based. Well, let's go deeper with that because I want to play that all the way out because I think that what you're hitting on there is so important because um, and, I, and I just want to bring it out even more explicitly is like, where does God's justice go? Where does it want to take us? And how does that stand in contradiction to what the world wants to invite us into in terms of, I'm just going to call it for the, the sake of distinction here, social justice, which I'm terming kind of the world's version of justice. I know that there, we could get into a whole historical conversation about social justice and how it connects to Roman Catholic theology from 100 years ago and all of that. But we'll, we'll, just for now, for the sake of simplicity, we'll call social justice kind of the world's version of justice, the world standard, and we'll just use justice more generically or biblical justice to what we believe Jesus, his standard is and what he's inviting us into. Maybe unpack that a little bit more explicitly. Yeah, so what what's being pointed to here uh, in this song, I think, to draw back to Mary's song is uh, is this um, is another unique quality to the language she's using here, which is she's speaking largely in the past tense here, um, which is an odd thing, um, and it this is where it also diverges from the artistry of that meme because those statements in in that meme of uh, cast down the mighty and send the rich away are uh, are cast in the imperative, um, you know, sense, right? Their commands, uh, you know, do this and do that. But in Mary's language, she is speaking of these things as though they have already happened. Um, even though, you know, Caesar is still, you know, dictating from Rome, uh, even, 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 even while Herod the Great, the, this guy who's going to try to, you know, kill all, he's going to try to kill Jesus by killing all these, you know, innocent children, they're still in power and they remain in power. Uh, and the people that profit off of the whole, this whole economy of, of violence and, 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 and subjection, they, they still remain in power. And yet Mary, who is meditating on this mystery that is in her womb, um, is declaring in the spirit that it is as though these things have already happened, that these powers have already been defeated that this world of injustice has already been overturned because the word has been made flesh. Um, and so I think that that invites us into a meditation on an idea of justice as the Lord brings it about um, that is different because it seems to me that the what we, we, we termed the kind of social justice ideal um, tends to be the reverse. It tends to work from kind of the outside in saying as soon as we can properly um, you know, situate everybody in relationship to each other outwardly and, and make sure that there is this ideal form of equality that is known among all people that will, that will then, that will make everybody a just person, but we have to engineer it in a kind of, in a, in a social way, um, to arrange people so that, um, they, it, 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 it kind of breaks the back of any reason to be unjust. 
um, or any ability to be unjust. Um, and it seems to me that the gospel works in the opposite direction, um, that Mary beholds the whole overturning of the world's, um, you know, uh, the world's oppression and injustice from this quiet, you know, life that is growing in her womb silently. Um, and she is saying, yeah, uh, behold, this, uh, it is as though this has already happened because of what is happening here in, within me that I, that I can be, I can perceive. What a, what a powerful way of thinking about it, because the world is inviting us into the, a social justice idea where injustice can be fixed first and foremost by fixing exterior structures. And that's not to say that we, we, we can have a conversation about whether a structure or system is unjust according to God's standards. We, we can talk about that. But for the Christian, we, that's not really our starting point. Our starting point is the quiet wickedness of our heart and Jesus invading the world and the kingdom coming in this humble, lowly way. As you said, you know, the Caesar is still on the throne and and Luke starts it that way in chapter two of, you know, Tiberius and, and Caesar Augustus. And so we know, like, Rome is in power. And yet the world's about to change. And it, but it's this quiet way that, of the seed that that gets planted. And for the Christian, we have to understand that both justice and injustice start with a change in the, in the human heart. And the, the fundamental problem with the world is not that we lack equity or that that is is all of the we need to just fix all of the the systems the fundamental problem with the world is that i'm a child of adam and eve and the cure for that is jesus and so when she's talking about um you know sending away the powerful and that you know something good has come for the meek and the lowly we've got to understand it within that framework a salvation history. It sounds like what you're saying. No, that's right. You know, and I think Mary here is really um, because, I, and I think we look to her as a an exemplar, right? And this is this is a, this is the good reason to to honor her, right? She she perceives um, in that she 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 is the first person in whom Christ has come to dwell, right? Uh, and which becomes the character of, of all Christian lives. Uh, you know, as, as St. Paul tells us that, you know, Christ dwelling richly in our hearts by, uh, you know, in the, by the spirit through faith. Uh, and, and this is, this is, you know, a model for the Christian life in a way, um, that, uh, the way we look at the outward things begins with our, um, our prayerful, um, encounter with Christ within us. Um, and then, and then moves outward from there. And, um, there's a there's so much, and again, it's its own podcast probably to say, okay, so what are some of the kind of practical ways that the the gospel answers a quest a particular question of societal injustice? And I think that there's good reason for that, good a, a fruitful conversation to have there. Um, but we will we'll be undermined in our effort to do so if we don't begin where Mary begins here by meditating on the Word made flesh within us. Uh, and what that, what the meaning of that is on that cosmic scale. And, you know, I, I remember one time uh, hearing uh, uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, she once, you know, was, you know, was asked how she does, 
you know, how she can, you know, hold up to the pressure of doing all these, like, you know, all these, all these managing these charitable missions. And she said, well, you know, if I didn't, didn't pray three hours a day, I'd never get anything done, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I think that, you know, that's, that's a modern example of what we see in Mary here that we begin by meditating on the word made flesh. And that becomes the fa- a sure foundation for justice to then go out from it. So when we think about then just to build on that, you know, if we were to turn the pages to to Luke 4, and we see Jesus coming to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God, you know, maybe just build that brit for the bridge to that idea from from where we are from from Mary's song to, you know, how does that prepare us for Jesus's message of He's going to bring the kingdom of God because social justice people, they like the kingdom of God idea. They, they, they think that's, that proves their, their case. No, it's, it's an excellent point. Um, and, and it, it, it's fruitful for a Christian to meditate on this song. I would think daily, uh, in order to, um, come back and ask this question, um, so one of the things that I, I think, you know, as we look at, look at from the unfolding of this into the fruition of the kingdom of God, um, is that uh, the continuity between these two things is, of course, the Lord Jesus, right? Who in his um, in, in, in utero life um, is, uh, is Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and he is the one promised through the prophet Isaiah, you know, who will be, you know, on whom the government of God's kingdom will be. You know, and uh, and and he's the one foretold in the Psalms about the you know uh, uh, that David you know seeing ahead to a king, a priest king greater than himself, uh, you know who's to come. That you know the, the the baby Jesus in the womb of Mary is already that king, um, and his kingship will be revealed um, in in kind of escalating ways um, as we go through the story of the gospel and the book of Acts. Um, but as we, I think we, as we read the gospel in, in continuity with Acts, we get to see that, that picture as it unfolds, um, that it begins with this um, transformation of the heart. Um, and, uh, and as we experience that transformation, um, we begin to welcome the kingdom um, and not see, it as a, um, not see it as an oppressive thing, um, which is going to be something highlighted variously through the gospel and through Acts of how people encounter the proclamation of this kingdom um, and and how others will respond to it. Ultimately, as Jesus is magnified, um, as Jesus you know, grows, to, grows in stature and his glory is revealed um, in, a, in a continuous way through the gospel and through acts, um, and then culminating in what we see of him in Revelation, everything else is shown to be what it really is. Um, and so... Uh, as so when Jesus comes preaching that the kingdom has, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand, um, we have to remember that that is, you know, the kingdom of God is this name for wherever he is, wherever the king is and whatever the, whatever is made the kings, that is the king, that is the kingdom. And so as Jesus goes out, casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming the gospel, uh, you know, and declaring the favorable year of the Lord, uh, that is, you know, it draws out from everyone around them what, you know, the true intentions of the heart are. And this is an opportunity for repentance and transformation, but this is also an opportunity for the heart to be hardened against it. Um, and I think that's how we, we, we start to build out the bridge between those. And that's what begins to show us and illuminates what actual justice means in whatever moment we're living in is 
the more faithful we are to being, um, you know, Christians through and through, the more that the world around us is shown to be what it actually is. Um, but we often begin in the reverse order, though, right? We we think that the Christian life begins with recognizing what isn't Christ, um, when actually we have. I think we have to begin with um, that encounter, that daily, regular, moment by moment encounter with Christ, and then everything else is illuminated by Him. Boy, that sounds like a whole podcast right there. That that sounds like a a deep reflection. A lot we could go into there, but uh, to your point that. You know, as the gospel of Luke and, and Acts unfolds, we see people reacting and responding to the kingdom of God going out. And yet there are social justice oriented people. I, I met one when I was a student at Biola. She lived on my floor, a few, few doors down from me. I didn't know what social justice was back then, but she was always trying to tell me, you know, that socialism was just part of the gospel. That's what the kingdom of God is and she would point to i believe in like maybe acts acts three or acts four where it said that all the believers had all things in common and she said there there's your empirical evidence that this is what the kingdom is it is having all things in common and this ought to be the goal this is what it means to bring forward the kingdom of god is this great plan of equity um is, is that is that what what you see there no, uh, sadly, no. Um, although this is a question that gets brought up, and actually, our, our Tuesday night Bible study at the parish, we were uh, we were recently reading this chapter of Acts because we're going through Acts right now. Um, but no, I don't for a couple of reasons. One is, um, and perhaps the main reason is again um, the socialist ideal um, and, or sorry, the, the the socialist mechanism towards the communist ideal um, is um, it's dependent upon the apparatus of a state. Um, to um, to conduct a kind of coercive um, influence over um, against any any notion of of private property um, and uh, and it's sometimes you know read back into the scriptures that that's what's happening in the early church um, it's it's not in fact um, you know the, the, there's no edict that goes out from the apostles to all the disciples saying all right time to you know time for you to do this time for you to give over everything that you have it's like you, sometimes we imagine it as the most aggressive tithing sermon you could you could think of, uh, and, but instead it's it's not that at all. That um, each as they as they are you know each as they you know feel led, they they offer freely you know, and and it turns out many offer all, um, and some don't. Um, and there's no real notion in the Book of Acts um, that um, that private property is any kind of moral failure. Um, in, in fact. The church depended upon the ongoing, you know, ongoing offering of of private property that was, you know, offered in 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 due season, right? And so this idea of the immediate forsaking of the idea of private property is not really, not really what's being preached in Acts. The one example that gets brought up on this is, of course, the the sad case of Ananias and Sapphira in the Book of Acts. Um, you know, sometimes said, ah, oh, well, they they tried to have private property, therefore, you know, they weren't they were struck dead. Um, but Peter very clearly says in that the reason that they are struck down is because not because of private property, but because of of, of deception and and sacrilege, of lying to the Holy Spirit, uh, kind of like and uh, is sacrilege in the sense of like Nadab and Abihu in the in the around the tabernacle in the Old Testament, right? There, there's that that is what happens when you commit blasphemy and sacrilege. 
not when you have you know you know withheld private property and that, that so it's a I would say for a lot the, the scriptures just don't bear out the argument of what we what we know of as the modern idea of communism or, or any of its kind of more recent iterations. I just can't yeah. see that. So when we think about um, the poor, you know, in in going back to Mary's song here is it, it says that he sends the rich away empty. He fills the hungry with good things. I mean, what we're not talking about is the socialist version of equity where that's what Jesus is going for. That's the kingdom of God. That's justice. It just doesn't seem like you can make all of the biblical pieces fit. If Sure, if you looked at a verse out of context, you know, you could, and then you saw it through a particular lens, you could see it that way. But we've got to take all of the pieces and parts and understand the full picture of salvation history and then reading the small parts through that lens of of salvation history. Well, you know, in, in the socialist ideal, you know, we're we're all naturally, you know, we're we're thought of to be naturally good, and it's this it's simply being caught up in this awful system that, of class conflict that makes us, you know, do things that are unjust. Yeah, and and that is that is contrary to the view of Scripture, which doesn't see this economic system and this of uh, that that creates class conflict as the problem, but rather, like you said, the the, the corruption of the heart and everything that comes out from it. Um, and, you know, Jesus himself shows us what sending the rich empty away means. Um, you know, he pronounces later in Luke's gospel his woes against those who are comfortable in this world because they have received their reward in full, right? To those who think they have it all, they're allowed to persist in the hardness of heart and the delusion of the heart that says, I have it all. And so what else they're left to give them? And so, of course, you would, you, they would have to go away from anything empty if they continue in that delusion insofar as they do. But this is also willing to redeem the person who has been delusional in their heart. Um, there is the, like the example of his offer to the rich young ruler, right? Where he says, you know, sell all you have and, and, and come and follow me uh, and, 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 and you will have treasure in heaven. Um, and he goes away sad because for that very, that very reason of, of kind of possessiveness and attachment, um, and, but but this is not you know a, a kind of the reversal of the power structure. This is a an, an eroding of the whole you know underpinnings of the power structure and the 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 gift of a new way of being human. Yeah, and what I find fascinating about the story of the rich young ruler is just a few verses later in the very next chapter is the story of Zacchaeus, and my my theory is that it's not a it, it's it's not a coincidence that Luke kind of juxtaposes those two stories nearly back to back because in one you have a rich person who goes away sad because he doesn't respond to the the call to discipleship but then you have Zacchaeus who's practically um ripping the door off its hinges so he can get in the kingdom of God like he wants to be a disciple of Jesus and what is his immediate response is I'm going to make amends and he he he's pointing back to the law of God of all of the theft that he's engaged in he's going to make it right and he he knows the scriptures enough to know that this is how you do it and so that is the the sign of true repentance is that I will obey I will obey the the word of God and so you know it's the natural response of his heart and so when we get trapped in the conversation about justice 
and we start using the world's terms and standards, it can become a muddled mess. We have to really start with scripture first because justice starts in the character of God himself. It says in the Psalms that the, the throne of God is justice. And so it, we, we cannot go out and borrow from the world or we will be way off course. That, that's a beautiful point, uh, particularly because it, it draws out from Luke what you and Aaron so so wonderfully mentioned in your last year's uh, series of podcasts, which is that that dual, those, 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 those sets of two that you, you aptly noted in Luke's gospel, right? That there's a point and a counterpoint. You know, Zechariah's sort of unfaithful response to the message of the angel is mirrored, is, is met by Mary's faithful response. And then you have the rich young ruler, but then Zacchaeus, you know, and so it's, it's this vision of hope for, through all of this. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Well, let's circle it back to Mary here as we close out. You know, what do you see as Mary's actual role in the in the Christian view and in the Christian life in our sanctification? If, if she's not a social justice uh, activist, you know, what what sh- what is she? Oh, this is this is a great question. Um, so for for every Christian. Um, who wants to earnestly study the scriptures. Mary is one of the really interpretive keys to understanding the scriptures. Um, you know, the the prominent, you know, golden thread of the scriptures is, of course, um, the set is our Lord, uh, our Lord Jesus, and um, all of the, you know, careful, um, you know, the, the careful noting of the, of the anticipation of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, and then all that the, the that Jesus went and did himself, and then empowered his church to do um, as his body on earth. Um, and, and but but there's also uh, we might call it the silver thread of the scriptures. Um, if he's the golden thread, the silver thread of the scriptures is this um, what we, this kind of uh, anticipation of Mary, um, and Mary being this person that is anticipated by Miriam, by Deborah, by Yael, by Hannah, by Esther. Uh, and this, if you read the scriptures this way, you can see that um, insofar as God is presenting us in the gospel with a, a, new, a vision, uh, the vision of a new Adam, of, of, an, of a new humanity constituted in Christ, uh, one of the first effect of that grace, of that new work of salvation is um, the, the, the revealing of, of a kind of a new Eve. Um, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why Jesus calls Mary woman in John chapter 2. Um, because he, as he'll be called by Pontius Pilate later on, is the man. Um, and so you have this new humanity that is being um, sort of revealed, um, you know, grounded in Christ. But it, the, the first person we see it at work in is his mother, because that's the first person he has that kind of personal relationship with. And so for all Christians, Mary is a, is a, is a significant um, um, person to meditate on because she helps us to see the scriptures in their continuity and to see those more clearly. But then secondly, Mary is, is someone who shows us what it means to receive Christ, um, you know, and to turn away from the ways we want to say no to Christ. Um, and, you know, we look at M- Mary as a, a, you know, the, the great work of, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, sister, uh, sister Grace Remington. Uh, she has this beautiful, uh, icon of Mary standing face to face with Eve. Um, and Eve is looking sh- ashamed and remorseful, and is like the, the the bitten apples at her feet, and then Mary just has kind of her hand on her head, um, and and her hand on her on her um, you know on her baby bump, uh, and uh, and this beautiful image of of Mary sort of redeeming Eve, 
uh, and 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 saying yes where Eve said no. Um, and so for us, whose humanity is is you know was offered kind of collectively as a gift to God through through Mary, um, we could do little better than to meditate on her great yes to the mission of God to His salvation um, and to our part in it. Um, and so as Christians, we're always being asked to say yes to God. Uh, and Mary shows us what it means to do that. She says, behold, the servant, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. And that's a prayer we should offer every day. What a wonderful way to round us out here. Thank you so much, Father Aiden, for doing this conversation with me. I hope people are blessed by it. Thank you for um, just walking us through the text. This has just been a, a, a wonderful study. Oh, the pleasure's been all mine. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, I hope you found this helpful. It was a great kind of capstone, I feel, to the conversations that Aaron Kunkel and I had last year. I'm so glad we did this. So grateful for Father Hayden to come on and talk to us today. And, you know, I think as Protestants, sometimes we struggle in what to think about Mary. And I also want to encourage you to go back and um, watch my Christmas content from two years ago. I did a conversation with my friend Ken Samples about the incarnation. And so I think that it's just a great time of year to think about the Lord's coming as we press in in just a few more days to Christmas time. And I hope that you will have these conversations with your kids, maybe share this conversation with your teens and have a good discussion with them about this meme and about their thoughts about Jesus and Mary and justice and all the things that we've talked about today. And this is important because our culture is ready, willing, and able to catechize our children in their own forms of justice. And so what we want to do is try to have the conversation first. And we want to set that framework in their worldview first so that when they encounter that counterfeit, They'll be able to, to spot it and begin to talk about it with us as our parents. And so that's my encouragement to you today as we head into the holidays. I know the holidays can be very challenging for some of you. Some of you, your children are not going to come home this year for the holidays. Some of you, I know that your children no longer speak to you. There's a fair number of our followers who have been canceled by their adult children. And I just want you to know that Monique and I are praying for you. And I want to invite you to join our parent support group at the Center for Biblical Unity. You can just go on our Facebook page, click on groups, make sure you fill out the form to apply to become part of our network there of our parent support group. But we're going to be running a special book group starting in January just for those parents who are struggling and have been canceled by their children or whose children have deconstructed as a result of woke ideologies. We're gonna have a special book group just for you to help encourage you in your faith. You can meet some new friends who will pray for you and love you. And we just want you to know as we go into the holiday season, that Monique and I think of you often, those of you who are in this, this season of life. And um, we just want you to know that we're a safe harbor for you and, and that we are trying to provide these resources to help you as well, not just people with small children, but people with grown children who want to have better conversations and try to understand what's happened in their families. And with that, I want to say 
Merry Christmas, and God bless you. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.